The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at High Five Casino! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails done. Outfit stunner. And my skin? I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hey, welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison, and uh, today I'm going to be talking about some really big things and ideas. But hopefully I'll be talking about them in a way that contextualizes them and makes you remember that despite their magnitude, they're still very real things that you can interact with. Anyway, I'll get started and eventually it will kind of make sense. So right now, we are all living in one massive liminal space. For those less online than I am, I'll explain what I mean. Liminal spaces became an online meme around late 2019 as a term to describe a certain type of picture that features architecture or like just a place that looks off, familiar, eerie, lonely, yet mesmerizing and beautiful. 
I've been an avid lurker on the liminal space subreddit for a while now, and there's an undeniable allure to these dreamlike photos of buildings and rooms and the effect that they have on me. Describing what makes a liminal space photo a liminal space photo, as opposed to just any other regular photo of a building or a room, can be tricky because in part, the point is to elicit a certain feeling without thinking too much about the why. They're not spooky or scary in the traditional sense. The gist of a liminal space photo, and where it gets its name, liminality, is a good place to begin to understand what type of feelings these pictures are supposed to produce. Liminal refers to a transitional phase, and the ambiguity and disorientation associated with being inside of a threshold, not on either one side per se, but somewhere in between. Now, that threshold can be many things. A literal, transitionary threshold between certain places is a common one. This can include stuff like hallways and airports. One of my favorites, though, is a threshold between time— an ambiguous, unspecific nostalgia that you can't quite place, but it feels awfully familiar, like a dream from childhood. Pictures of weird, indoor, squishy playgrounds do this for me. The other threshold is a threshold between purpose and use, like a building or room designed for a very specific, special purpose, but now no longer serving that. It's empty and out of date. An abandoned mall or cheery birthday party room at an arcade photographed desolate and in the dark. There's two other aspects of liminal space photos that complement the various thresholds we've mentioned. Usually, they have no visible people, and there's a sense of artificiality, like a lot of fluorescent and artificial lighting, and even when there is a sunny outside, it looks fake, like a Windows computer screensaver. One of the most popular liminal space photos is of an underground bunker in Las Vegas that was painted and decorated to look like it's outside, despite being buried deep within the ground. It's such a great example of liminal spaces because it elicits a certain type of cognitive dissonance and a distinct lack of synchronicity that is difficult to describe otherwise. Almost never is quote-unquote nature the subject of these photos, they nearly exclusively focus on very human constructs, particularly ones that no longer serve their intended use, or maybe never did in the first place. So what do I mean by we're all in one huge liminal space right now? Well, we are in between a historic economic and technological boom, one that's produced machines that resemble the magic of old, but on the other side of this valley is global climate catastrophe, and destruction and change, the likes of which humans have possibly never seen or at least remembered. We're in the transitionary period between these two states, and that disassociation of not being fully in either one, that, that cognitive dissonance, can be kind of mind-boggling. It's like the nervous anticipation right before the roller coaster goes over the peak, or that weird feeling of being alone in an empty church nursery at night. Similar to liminal space photos, climate change transcends a regular perception of time, space, and with that, cause and effect. It's more than just a regular thing, phenomenon, or object. While specifically thinking about climate change, 
Philosopher Timothy Morton dubbed these massive space-time-altering objects as hyper-objects. Now, Morton often writes about things that can't be talked about directly, so really the only way to discuss it or get into the topic is to orbit around it, associating with adjacent ideas or words, to get close enough to the topic to partially understand it, even if you can't get quite there. Other possible examples of hyperobjects besides climate change can include stuff like black holes, the biosphere, or the solar system. But hyperobjects don't need to be just massive celestial things. They can also be the sum total of all nuclear materials on Earth, or the very long-lasting product of direct human manufacture, such as all of the styrofoam or plastic bags in the world. It can also be the sum of all the whirling machinery of capitalism or the state. Hyperobjects, then, are hyper just in relation to some other entity, whether they're directly manufactured by humans or not. And hyperobjects aren't just collections, systems, or assemblages of other objects. They are things in their own right, and they affect more than just humans. And they don't come into being just because humans notice them. They will have effects on the world, whether or not they are observed. One of the more obvious differences between hyperobjects and ordinary objects is that you can't ever actually see a hyperobject in its totality. You can only ever witness a small extension or piece of a hyperobject. Now, this makes thinking about them kind of intrinsically tricky. It's like only seeing a fragmented shadow of a thing and the effects that that thing has on all other things. Now, the more contrarian listeners might protest that we never see all of any object, even ordinary ones. Now, it's obviously true that everything we see has a negative side, the part behind that we can't actually always look at, but can reasonably assume is there. Now, the difference is that hyperobjects transcend not only our regular conception of physical reality, but more so our temporal reality. You can hold a coffee mug and rotate it around in a pretty short amount of time and witness each side and angle. Or if you wanted to get really fancy, you could make a 360 scan so you could see a projected version of the entire object. Or, you know, more simply, just get three people in a room to all look at different sides of the mug, thus forming a consensual reality-based understanding of the whole object. Now, not only can you not hold a hyperobject, but even if you could, the temporal effects would make it impossible to rotate it around to witness the totality of what's being held. And it would be way too big for multiple people to ever witness all sides of the thing. Quoting from Morton's book, Hyperobjects, the philosophy and ecology after the end of the world. Quote, Consider raindrops. You can feel them on your head, but you can't perceive the actual raindrop in itself. You can only ever perceive your particular anthropomorphic translation of the raindrops. Isn't this similar to the rift between weather, which I can feel falling on my head, and global climate? Not the older idea of local patterns of weather, but the entire system. I can think of and compute climate in this sense, but I can't directly see or touch it. The gap between the phenomenon and the thing yawns wide open, disturbing my sense of presence and being in the world. Humans have been aware of enormous entities, some real, some imagined, for as long as we have existed. 
But this book is arguing that there is something quite special about the recently discovered entities such as climate. These entities directly cause us to reflect on our very place on Earth and in the cosmos. Perhaps this is the most fundamental issue. Hyperobjects seem to force something on us, something that affects some core idea of what it means to exist, what Earth is, what society is. There's no doubt that cosmic phenomenon such as meteors and blood-red moons, tsunamis, tornadoes, and earthquakes have terrified humans in the past. Meteors and comets were known as disasters. You know, literally, a disaster is a fallen, dysfunctional, or dangerous, or evil star. Disaster. But such disasters take place against a stable backdrop. There is the Ptolemaic Aristotelian machinery of the stars, which hold fixed stars in place. It seems as if there's something about hyperobjects that is more deeply challenging than these disasters. The worry is not whether the world will end, as in the old models of the disaster, but whether the end of the world is already happening, or whether perhaps it might have already taken place. A deep shuddering of temporality then occurs. For one thing, we are inside hyperobjects, like Jonah in the Whale. This means that every decision we make is in some sense related to hyperobjects, these decisions are not merely limited to sentences in texts about hyperobjects. When I turn the key in the ignition of my car, I am relating to global warming. When a novelist writes about the immigration to Mars, they are relating to global warming. I am one of the entities caught in the hyperobject that I hear call global warming. Different hyperobjects have numerous properties in common. But for our purposes, we're going to discuss the five main points of similarity. Hyperobjects are viscous, meaning they stick to beings that are involved with them. They are non-local. In other words, any local manifestation of the hyperobject is not directly the hyperobject. They involve very different temporalities than the human-scale ones that we're used to. In particular, some very, very large hyperobjects have a genuine Gaussian temporality. They generate space-time vortexes due to general relativity. And hyperobjects occupy a higher-dimensional phase space that results in their being invisible to humans for stretches of time. And they exhibit their effects interobjectively. That is, they can be detected in a space that consists of interrelationships between aesthetic properties of objects. The hyperobject is not just a function of our knowledge. It is also hyper-relative to worms, lemons, and ultraviolet rays, as well as humans. Now, I'm going to go into the five different points of similarity in more detail to kind of help flesh out what these things, hyperobjects, what they are, and how they might actually be a useful way to think about really big stuff. So, first off, viscous. Hyperobjects adhere to any object they touch, no matter how hard the object tries to resist. In this way, hyperobjects overrule ironic distance, meaning that the more an object tries to resist a hyperobject, the more glued to the hyperobject it becomes. Now, the more you learn about any big topic, the more you'll end up noticing it in the world. This is the law of synchronicity. But the more you know about climate change, the more you realize how perversive it is. 
The more you discover about evolution, the more you realize how much our entire physical being is caught in its meshwork. Immediate, intimate symptoms of hyperobjects are very real, vivid, and often painful. Yet they carry with them this trace of unreality. A good example of hyperobject viscosity would be radioactive materials. The more you try to get rid of them, the more you realize you can't. They seriously undermine the notion of away. There is no away. Flushing vomit down the toilet doesn't make it disappear. It makes its way to the ocean or the water treatment facility and, and eventually just back to us. Again, I'll quote from the book Hyperobjects. Quote, Light itself is the most viscous thing of all, since nothing can surpass its speed. Radiation is Sartre's jar of honey par excellence, a luminous honey that reveals our bone structure as it seeps around us. Again, it's not a matter of making some suicidal leap into the honey, but discovering that we are already inside it. This is it, folks. This is the ecological interconnectedness. Come in and join the fun. But I see that you're already here. Unquote. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> the next point of similarity we're going to discuss is the molten or Gaussian quality. Hyperobjects are time-stretched to such an extent that they become impossible to hold in the mind. Hyperobjects are so massive that they refute the idea that space-time is fixed, concrete, and consistent. The size of hyperobjects can make them basically invisible just because they're so big. It's like swimming in Crater Lake in southern Oregon, one of the deepest lakes in the world. But it's not just deep, it's also very, very clear. So... The water is so deep, yet so clear, it's like you're swimming in the sky. It's like you're swimming in nothing. It would be like if you approach an object and more and more objects emerge. Because we can't see the end of them, hyperobjects are necessarily uncanny. They, they have to be. Just like my favorite liminal space photos, hyperobjects seem to beckon us further into themselves, making us realize that we're already lost inside them. The recognition of being caught in hyperobjects is precisely a feeling of strange familiarity and a familiar strangeness. Next up is non-locality. Hyperobjects are massively distributed in time and space, such as any particular local manifestation never actually reveals the totality of the hyperobject. For example, Climate change is a hyperobject that impacts meteorological conditions such as tornado formations. Objects don't feel climate change, but instead experience tornadoes as they cause damage in specific places. Thus, non-locality describes the manner in which a hyperobject becomes more substantial than the local manifestations that they produce. Quoting Morton again, For a flower... Nuclear radiation turns its leaves a strange shade of red. Global warming for the tomato farmer rots the tomatoes. Plastic for the bird strangles it as it becomes entangled in a set of six-pack rings. What we are really dealing with here are just the aesthetic effects that are directly causal. The octopus of the hyperobject emits a cloud of ink as it withdraws from access. Yet this cloud of ink is a cloud of its effects and affects. These phenomenon themselves are not global warming or radiation. Action at a distance is involved. 
It's like confusing the map with the territory. Hyperobjects cannot be thought up as occupying a series of now points in time or space. They confound the social and psychic instruments we use to measure them. Even digital devices have trouble. Global warming is not just a function of our measuring devices, yet because it's distributed across the biosphere and beyond, it's hard to see it as a unique entity. And yet, there it is, raining down on us, burning down on us, quaking the earth, spawning giant hurricanes. Global warming is an object of which many things are distributed pieces. The raindrops falling on my head in Northern California, the tsunami that pours through the streets of Japanese towns, the increasing earthquake activity based on changing pressure on the ocean floor. Like a moving illusion picture, global warming is real, but it involves a massive counterintuitive perspective shift for us to see it. Convincing some people of its existence is like convincing some two-dimensional flatland people of the existence of apples, based on the appearance of a morphing circular shape in their world. Next point of similarity is phasing. So our sense of being in a time and inhabiting a place depends on forms of regularity. The periodic rhythms of day and night, the sun coming up. Only now we know that it doesn't really come up. It's now common knowledge that the moon's phases are just the relationship between the Earth and the moon as they circumnavigate the sun. Hyperobjects seem to phase in and out of the human world. They occupy a higher dimensional phase space that makes them impossible to see as a whole on our regular three-dimensional human scale basis. But they might appear differently to an observer with a higher dimensional view. We can only see pieces of a hyperobject at a time. The reason why they appear non-local and temporally foreshortened is precisely because of this trans-dimensional quality. We can only see pieces of them at once, like a tsunami or a case of radiation sickness. If an apple were to invade a two-dimensional world, first the stick people would see some dots as the bottom of the apple touched their universe, and then a rapid succession of shapes that would appear like an expanding and contracting circular blob, diminishing into a tiny circle, possibly a point, and then disappearing. That's why you can't directly see climate change. You would need to occupy some higher dimensional space to see the hyperobject unfolding explicitly. Like the people in the two-dimensional flatland, we can only see brief patches of this gigantic object as it intersects with our world. The brief patch called Hurricane destroys the infrastructure of New Orleans. The brief patch called Drought burns the plains of Russia and the Midwestern United States to a crisp. Our bodies itch with yesterday's sunburn. But don't relegate hyperobjects as a simple abstract notion. Thinking of hyperobjects as transdimensional, real things is valuable. Global warming is not simply a mathematical abstraction that doesn't really pertain to this world. Hyperobjects don't just inhabit some conceptual beyond in our heads or out there. They are real objects that affect other objects. We tend to only think about hyperobjects as they phase in and connect to other, more static objects. This is a mistake and contributes to non-action. Whether or not we perceive objects and hyperobjects connecting 
doesn't affect the existence and the inevitable effects of the hyperobject. What we experience as the slow, periodic reoccurrence of a celestial event, such as an eclipse or a comet, is a continuous entity whose imprint simply shows up on our social and cognitive space for a while. The gaps I perceive between moments at which my mind is aware of the hyperobject and moments at which it isn't do not matter in relation to the hyperobject itself. Okay, and now on to our final point of similarity, interobjective. Hyperobjects are formed by relations between more than one object. Consequently, objects are only able to perceive the imprint or footprint of a hyperobject upon other objects, revealed as information. It's all an ecological mesh of interconnectedness and interobjectivity. For example, climate change is formed by interactions between the sun, fossil fuels, carbon dioxide, economic growth, among other things. Yet, climate change is made apparent through emissions levels, temperature changes, and the sea level rising, making it seem as if global warming is a product of scientific models, rather than connected to an object that predates its own measurement. Hyperobjects exist in and between objects and things we deal with every day, but it's not simply those objects. Plastic bags are not climate change, but those things are both intertwined. Hurricanes are not climate change, but they can be a shadow-like local manifestation of it. A mesh consists of relationships between crisscrossing strands and the gaps between strands. Meshes are a potent metaphor for the strange interconnectedness of things, an interconnectedness that does not allow for perfect, lossless transmission of information, but is instead full of gaps and absences. When an object is born, it is instantly meshed into a relationship with other objects in the mesh. The mesh isn't inside of all things, but is on the edge or floats on top of all things. Interobjective mesh is the extra connecting layer between the mass and the mask of all objects, almost like a universal skin fascia. Interobjectivity provides a space that is ontologically in front of objects, in which relational phenomenon can emerge. The massiveness and distribution of hyperobjects simply force us to take note of this fact. Hyperobjects provide great examples of interobjectivity, namely the way in which nothing is ever experienced directly, but only as mediated through other entities in some shared consensual space. We never hear the wind in itself, only the wind in the door, the wind in the trees. This means that for every objective system, there is at least one entity that is withdrawn from the relationship. We see the footprint of a dinosaur left in some ancient rock that was once a pool of mud. The dinosaur's reality exists interobjectively. There is some form of shared space between the rock, ourselves, and the dinosaur, even though the dinosaur isn't there directly. The print of a dinosaur's foot in the mud is seen as a foot-shaped hole in a rock by humans 65 million years later. There is some sensuous connection then between the dinosaur, the rock, and the human, 
despite their vastly differing timescales. The dinosaur footprint in fossilized mud is not a dinosaur. Rather, the footprint is a trace of the hyperobject evolution that joins me, the dinosaur, and the mud together, along with the intentional act of holding them in the mind. I found the hyperobject banner as a useful tool to help my brain think about things that are just too big, things that have effects so spaced out in time that using our ordinary models of thought are just inadequate. It can also reconcile the opposing views that cast climate change as the very real series of disasters, or a complicated interlocking mesh of systems that can feel very unreal and overwhelming. Just thinking of big things as abstract systems has the habit of divorcing you from the real-world impacts things like hyperobjects can cause. Sometimes we forget that climate change is a thing we interact with every day and can inform choices we make. Now, the almost impossible-to-comprehend totality of our situation is not great for mental well-being. You can end up tail-spinning down a black hole of fate, conspiracy, coping, denial, and doom. It's very easy to trip and fall into a void of negation. Things that are hyperobjects fundamentally break our conception of reality, temporality, and cause and effect. And it's already a really weird time to try to suss out reality. We're constantly being bombarded with products and services trying to usurp the real. That's what marketing is. You know, first we had the internet with its limitless possibilities as a digital universe. Then we got the world of social media with all of its fractured and fractaled realities. There's immersive gaming and the allure of getting lost within thousands of unique worlds. And now we have VR, AR, and the metaverse. More layers of digital fabrication trying to be passed off as an almost hyper-reality a promise to make a reality even more real and immersive than our status quo. The internet itself is another hyperobject, and all of this extra reality can take a strain on the human mind. Derealization, the perception that actual waking reality is an artificial construct, the feeling of being detached from your surroundings, like the world's made of cardboard or you're looking at everything through cloud of fog is becoming more and more common, especially among so-called Gen Z, the generation that grew up with the internet being a staple of life. Now, how we got here is a disassociation between humans and what we call nature or the environment. The problems aren't getting fixed because we're so disassociated from the effects, just as the effects are from the cause. That resulting alienation of all things makes this worse. All of the worst effects of climate change aren't going to be felt for hundreds of years. And that is a weird feeling. That is cognitive dissonance. That I don't know how to understand that. And that makes making decisions about our situation now feel distant, yet also urgent. It's both, and it's neither, and it's confusing. The resulting alienation of all things makes this worse. It produces this lack of immediate and close-in-proximity consequences. We must purposely remove these layers of separation and abandon our anthropocentric thinking. Nature isn't other from us. We are nature. It's the same thing. We are all part of this big mesh. 
this this sacred idea of nature isn't natural and can never be naturalized. We have to learn how to have an ecology without nature, with, without nature as a separate thing. To have a genuine ecological view, we must relinquish this idea that nature being separate from us once and for all. We have to kill the Anthropocene in our own head. A quote from one of Morton's other books titled Ecology Without Nature. Putting something called nature on a pedestal and admiring it from afar does for the environment what patriarchy does for the figure of a woman. It's a paradoxical act of sadistic, possessive admiration. Unquote. So within Morton's branch of philosophy, reification, the making of a thing into a thing, is precisely the reduction of a real object to its sensual appearance for another object. Reification is reduction of one's entity to another's fantasy about it. Nature is a reification in this sense, and that's why we need an ecology without nature. Maybe if we turn nature into something more fluid, it might work. Now, most of our modern political discourse can be boiled down to what things are real and what things are not. Hyperobjects and climate change don't just play into this debate, but crash into it, decimating all the other toys in this sandbox. As Morton says, the threat of global warming is not only political, but also ontological. The threat of unreality is the very sign of reality itself. And oh boy, do we be experiencing the simultaneous disillusionment of reality and the overwhelmingly real presence of hyperobjects, which stick to us, which are us. The worry is not whether the world will end, but whether the end of the world is already happening, or whether perhaps it might have already taken place. The idea of the end of the world is very active in environmentalism, but the way it's usually framed kind of fosters its own negation. The end of the world is coming idea is not really effective, since, to all intents and purposes, the being that we are supposed to feel anxiety about and care for is actually already gone. This does not mean that there's no hope for ecological politics and ethics and a better future. Far from it. In fact, Morton and I would argue that the strongly held belief that the world's about to end, unless we act now, is paradoxically one of the most powerful factors that inhibit a full engagement with our ecological coexistence here on Earth. The strategy of the ecological hyperobject concept is to then awaken us from this dream that the world's about to end, because action on Earth, like the real Earth, depends on it. The end of the world has already happened. Using the hyperobject idea helps sort out these overly systematic things into a package that I can actually think about. There's something about discovering the language for a feeling, being able to name it, that is empowering, a way of finding a handhold in the dim light of confusion rather than scrambling around in the dark. So how would you convince two-dimensional flatland people of the existence of apples based on the occasional phasing appearance of a morphing circular shape in their world. Now, hyperobjects can really assist in understanding the cognitive dissonance around climate denial. You can't point to something like rising sea levels and say, that is climate change, because, yeah, that isn't climate change the hyperobject. 
rising sea levels are just an environmental effect. And since the effects are so disattached from the cause, that fosters a lot of room for cognitive dissonance when people point at extreme weather and call it something else. It's our lack of ecology, our seeing of interconnected things as separate problems or manifestations, missing the fact that almost all of our problems don't have a shared root cause, but instead are just part of a massive shared bungee cord-like mesh network. When so many local manifesting problems and natural disasters are blamed on climate change, even if you believe climate change is the cause, which it, you know, it, it is, it still feels weird because climate change isn't just a simple thing. It's such an amorphous, shape-shifting, time-traveling idea that for the climate denier or climate skeptic, seeing very real physical effects be blamed on such an abstract thing is hard for them and their understanding of reality. For many people, rejecting hyperobjects is a lot easier than thinking about them. Because once you start thinking about them, finding solutions to problems so displaced in time is not only difficult, but encourages procrastination. The greenhouse gas emissions up there in the air right now won't reach their full effects for decades and centuries, that's not downplaying the urgency of the problem. In fact, that should make the problem more urgent. The cause is our brief luxury, and the effect is terraforming the world. And we are right now caught in between. The uncanny hyperobject of all liminal spaces. The end of the world has already happened. We are on the path and about to enter a new world, we are in the liminal space hallway of all liminal space hallways. The door behind us is closed, and at the other end of the hallway is a black hole. We cannot backtrack and re-enter the door behind us. Already are we getting sucked forward into the hallway, but there are many doors ahead of us, and we get to choose which one to open. At this point, we have passed some of the prettier doors, but don't be tricked into thinking that there are none left. We must not focus on preserving an old way of life, but instead need to carefully carve out our new reality. We need to pick our new door. Well, that is my essay read thing episode amalgamation about hyperobjects, liminal spaces, and our new reality. I hope you found some of the ideas useful, um, despite their kind of abstract and anti-abstract in nature. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, I would recommend reading Timothy Morton's book, Hyperobjects. Um, it is an academic read, but it's not that bad. I would, I would recommend picking it up if you want to learn more about these things. I'm sure I'll talk about them more in the future. Thank you for listening, everybody. See you on the other side. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at High5Casino.com. High Five Casino. 
What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Father's Day is coming. A day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us. To crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian Cocktail Maker? It's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all-natural bitters, so Dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So, for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. happen here podcast i'm robert evans sovi is that it unfortunately <laughs> i'm so sorry Great. all right well I just apologize really quick because that's a lot to take in no us. that was a good introduction that was a good introduction we got across the gist who, who of, else of is happening. here with you robert that's a great question is garrison here yeah i think they are is, here is chris here I think he's Hello. here. Is is Saint Andrew here? I am indeed. Excellent. Um, why don't you take over and do and do my job for me? That sounds great. Awesome. Actually, good yeah. idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, what's happening, everybody? I am Saint Andrew, back to guest host yet again. Um, last time we spoke about, you know, uh, soft climate change denial, and continuing the theme of. Me talking about whatever I want to talk about as per contractual obligation. Um, today, I wanted to explore a concept that I brought up in one of my recent videos. Um, self and community actualization. Yeah. 
Right. So first we need to get in some context, of course. Um, I mean, when most people hear self-actualization, they probably think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The famous pyramid that management uh, staff tend to use and yeah, hang up in their offices and such. Los Angeles yoga ladies. Uh, <laughs> the context in which I've heard self-actualization the most. Yeah, yeah, that whole goop kind of vibe, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so self-actualization, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the old psych 101 stuff. You know, I mean, it's traditionally represented as a pyramid, but it was never how Maslow himself actually depicted it. Um, it was actually something that later interpreters of his work ran with and popularized. Um, and so that as a result of that pyramid, there are a lot of, you know, critiques of Maslow's theory that don't quite engage with his theory, but rather engage with like interpretations of his theory by other people. But, um, you know, I think it's still an interesting way to depict human needs. And I think it's a good launching point to start thinking about and start discussing, you know, human needs. Um, where do y'all think y'all are on the pyramid right now? Just for posterity's sake. Oh, right up on the tippy top. Oh, for real? I mean, awesome. I, I, like, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been very lucky to do exactly like what I want to do for a living most of my life. And, and now I own goats, so it doesn't get any better yes. than that. Including one absolute unit. Yeah, he's fucking massive. He's a chunky buddy. <laughs> what about uh, Garen, Chris? I I really don't know. I I I don't, I don't spend too much time thinking about models like this, especially around kind of my own my own goals, um, and like where I see myself. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 doing like I'm 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 relatively stable with my like actual physical needs. Um, so I guess, yeah, just trying to figure out what I, what I actually want out of life, like a lot of younger people do, I guess. Right, right. So I guess that's more on the um, esteem or, yeah, or self-actualization side of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah that right. line. And it, it's harder because you can say like, well, within the context of like what is possible, I'm, I'm, I'm where I want to be and I'm doing stuff that I, I, I want to be doing. But also, everything feels like a disaster around me all the time because of, yeah. of the times I'm in, which makes it difficult to be as right. Like, I was about to say, is anybody really on the safety needs category of of, of the pyramid? I mean, uh, uh, some people like absolutely, yeah. No, I but mean, like yeah, in I this the, group. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like we 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 are yeah, like, it, right. There's like yeah. a weird. There's like a weird disassociation between what's actually going on and what we know could be going on in like the larger sphere. That's fair. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a very good way of thinking about it is like, yeah, my immediate needs are met. Am I very concerned that large chunks of the places I love will be unlivable and, you know, there will be a, a that we're kind of staring in the face of a variety of calamities that, that could, uh, make everything worse for me and everybody I care about? Absolutely. But I can't do anything yeah. about that right the now. The other thing I was going to point out is that uh, with like uh, with like the physio needs, is <laughs> that includes sleep. 
Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, once we get yeah. to that, I. This now was, you're talking about being the sun shining down on the pyramid, and who gets up there? You know, the, the sleep the sleep scientists have had their pockets in big bed for far too long. That's right, far too long. Exactly. Apologies, exactly. Andrew. Please go. The ahead. cozy industrial complex <laughs> no, it's is fine. the problem. It's fine. I was just going to say something relatively. I was going to say that um, you know, the pyramid, as we are discovering in this conversation, doesn't really accurately map out, you know, needs and human psychology really because i mean not just because our brains aren't shaped like pyramids but also because at any point in time we can be straddling multiple um sections and parts of the needs so for example we could all be breathing air and drinking water and having our food and stuff met right now um and you know you might be like really respected and stuff in your field um and you might have a certain a good sense of self-esteem and stuff, but then at the same time, you know, you're not in a safe place. Yeah. Or you may be dealing with like a debilitating health condition, or you maybe lack in certain resources that you need to like thrive. Right. So, and then or maybe you know you have your food, water, shelter, sleep, all that, and you know you're secure and you have what you need and whatever but you have no friends you know you have no intimacy no family no sense of connection with other people so you're kind of like living in this bubble just floating through life you know i mean your bubble is safe it has what you need but there's now that social aspect yeah. yeah and um i think what's interesting about this is because as we start to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we start to see the structural and societal um, impact on, you know, our psychology and on our needs, right? Because if you want to talk about our safety needs, for example, or let's get straight to the, um, to the bottom, to the basic. If we want to talk about our physiological needs, water is now a packaged and commodified product, right? Food is something that is inaccessible to many, not because we don't have enough food, but because the distribution of it to meet the needs of all is not what's prioritized under capitalism, right? There are a lot of people who are lacking in shelter, you know, um, and a lot of people are sleep deprived by the systems we're living in. Yep. Mm. And same thing with safety, you know, um, we are basically literally threatened by climate change and you know we are atomized from our relationships and stuff because so much of us so many of us have to work so hard you know every day five days a week or more eight hours or more per day and it really just strips us of our social connections and with our esteem needs we're sort of stripped of that by you know these commercial messages that we get about like you're not this unless you have this and mm-hmm. bye 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 kind of thing Right. And then self-actualization isn't even really a thought for a lot of people because they're still busy trying to reach all those other things. Um, or they don't even have the time to think about how they can become who they are. Um, and we, we get into that a bit more later on in this discussion, but they don't really have the time or the sense to think about that because they've been so restricted by their circumstances. Right. And on top of that, restricted by like, 
the messages that they would have gotten, you know, whether it be in the school system or through ads or whatever the case may be. So I think looking at the pyramid, of course, it's incomplete and there are issues with it, but it does illuminate some interesting things that, you know, we're dealing with right now. I mean, yeah, like it def- definitely is easier to self-actualize and have esteem once your needs are met. But I think definitely there's an ability to jump around, especially when, you know, you have like large scale depression and alienation and disassociation. Like it, it, it's a weird, weird yeah. sense where you can kind of hop around the pyramid quite, quite often, even if you have certain things met. This doesn't necessarily mean you have something, you know, above or below. Yeah, like yeah. I... I... I've ne- I when it comes to like actual people that I associate with, you know, all of whom are folks who have to like have to work in order to live. Uh, I don't think it, I've ever heard anyone talk about happiness in terms of like self-actualization. It's always in terms of like when I get my student loans paid off, you know, when I get my when I'm able to take care of this health problem that I have, like when I have enough money, it's basically everything boils down to for most people when I have enough money to not be uh, as suffering as much from this specific thing or to not be scared about not having enough money, Um, which is I think more what I get from people when they're talking about like aspirational goals than I would like to do this thing that that fulfills me as a person. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's like so. Like any any kind of actual self actualization becomes this, not just a luxury, but a luxury that's just unimaginable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Some people can't even imagine. I know people who have just basically given up on like ever being able to repay their loans. Right, like they've just yeah. resigned themselves to like this is my life now for all eternity. This is, this is it, you know? And I, I can't blame them. Who can really blame them when that is the reality? You know, for a lot of people, taking themselves out of debt is not possible. Even if they did get a whole bunch of the money or able to like pay off a bit more per month, you know, they still have interest rates that are just like so wildly exploitative that they're basically serfs for the rest of their lives. Of course, we had to have that brief moment of Damn, the system sucks, as is typical on It Could Happen Here. But um, <laughs> I want to shift our attention now to another society and another culture that has approached this human needs and human psychology and human society thing differently, right? Um, what's been coming to a lot more people's attention lately is that um, Abraham Maslow... Um, he was actually partially inspired to develop his theory by his stay with the Six Seeker Blackfoot. And I went into some of the details on the video on my channel, um, Rethinking Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. So I go a bit more in there. But basically, um, what he discovers, what I get to in that video, is that, well, firstly, some cultures view us as being born self-actualized, right? Like the Six Seeker Blackfoot. Meaning yeah, that, and that's the Blackfoot. Uh, just for a little bit of context, are, are an indigenous people. Uh, I think confederation is how they tend to refer to yes. themselves. And like Montana, uh, I think Idaho, um, Alberta, Canada as well. Yeah, uh, up oh, in Canada. Mostly. Yeah, I, I kind of like Idaho, Montana, and parts of Canada. Um, like that's that's Blackfoot territory. There were also. 
uh, Maslow spent time with them. L. Ron Hubbard lied about having spent a lot of time with the Blackfoot. Um, <laughs> so, fun fact I, there. Please I didn't know that. Oh, yes. There's a lot of Scientology lore I've yet to catch up on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, you know, with Maslow's model, self-actualization is essentially, you know, self-fulfillment, right? The tendency for the individual to become more and more what one is Mm-hmm. And to become everything that one is capable of becoming. So as like fulfilling your potential as a person, as a partner, as a parent, as a talent, as a artist, as a whatever. Just fulfilling your potential as a person. Right? But to say that we are born self-actualized, um, that framing more looks to seeing us each as born in the world with a spark of divinity. Because of course this is tied into their spirituality. Um, born with a spark of divinity and with a great purpose embedded in us. And what self-actualization is linked to in these cultures, inextricably linked to that is, is community actualization, right? So community actualization is a concept that places the actualized individual Mm -hmm. in the context of community. So instead of just upholding the individual alone, which Maslow's hierarchy has been critiqued for sort of doing, Community actualization incorporates the web of relationships that supports each of us as individuals. Basically, it recognizes that we cannot be self-actualized solely as individuals if there's not like a broader network, a broader web that is supporting us. You know, we're not islands standing alone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We were we were we were touching on 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 that point a bit a bit previous, but less eloquently. Um how, yeah, it is. It is. It's. It's. It's much easier to have the ability to actualize your goals into into actions when you are less alienated and you have and you, and you have all these other things around a, around a community. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is that I think like the lack of community self actualization is is kind of what we were talking about in terms of like. Yeah, things are seem things are great for me in as much as things are great, you know in the system we live in, but I, I don't feel that, you know? Yeah. You can look outside and you're like, (laughs) everything's actually really bad. I'm just kind of in my little bubble and I'm trying to expand my bubble to be around, you know, and help more people, but it can be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's only so much one person could do. And that's kind of the whole point of community, right? Our community supports our basic needs and basically equips us to manifest our purpose. So, it would, the community would be there to, for example, and we could get into this a bit more, design a model of education that supports us in expressing our unique gifts, right? Another part of the Six Eka Blackfoot philosophy involves cultural perpetuity, where there's an important consideration of those who came before and those who are coming after, seven generations forward and seven generations backward, as I had it explained to me. So that is something that I think would have been useful when it came to discussions of, um, you know, climate change. And it's very relevant now because we are seeing the older generations basically shrugging and being like, you know, um, well, it's Gen Z's problem now. Y'all could take care of it. Y'all are the future. Kids are all right. All that. Yeah. Yep. When they're basically on the download saying, fuck them kids, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wait, can I say that or... Yes, oh, yeah, can. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can always say fuck them kids. I say that to Garrison all the time. 
All right. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of kids, um, I think we could compare and contrast basically how childhood is approached in our society versus how it would be approached in a society that values community actualization. Um, I mean, and I'm just speaking from my experience here, of course, you're free to talk about your own. Um, I, from like primary school and stuff, I remember it constantly feeling like I had to compete with my fellow um, classmates. I mean, you know, I was friendly and stuff with everybody and stuff. But since I was like usually at or close to the top of my class, I always felt this kind of pressure to just beat them out and continue to be the best gifted kid ever. You know, so there was a sense of like, constant competition with others that wasn't really balanced out with a kind of um, collaborative sort of approach to like basically training us from like an early age to learn to cooperate and work with people as people and as comrades, you know, although (laughs) comrade is a weird way to put it, but yeah. I just remember there was a sort of sense of sort of atomization that undergirded that sort of educational approach. I feel, I feel like that's pretty uh, universal in a lot of a lot of parts of our modern world. We definitely really embed that sense of competition into very young kids, uh, yeah. whether that be in, in school or like wherever. Because yeah, that was that was definitely my experience, even even like in private school in Canada a long time ago. And I know that's that's a thing across you know a, a, across the ocean as well on on the other side of the pond. Yeah, we are back. That doesn't sound like us. <laughs> are we? Are we really back? Sorry, it's ten a.m. Um... <laughs> Robert. All right, so when we're to look at like childhood and education and stuff in a society that would value community actualization, um, what sort of things do you guys think we would be seeing in that sort of society? What sort of approaches do you think would be embedded from an early age? I'm trying to put it into words. So kind of one of the things... I, I'm I'm currently in a living situation, right, where I have uh, uh, I'm working with a group of people on a chunk of land, and so every week we do projects on it to make it better, um, which is tremendously satisfying. And I think in a in a a society where that kind of self actualization, like you've been talking about, was more common, kids would feel that way about doing things um, that improve their community like that uh that 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 take care of the people around them that make you know wherever they live um a better place to live like that would be that would be in the same way that like I go out each weekend thinking that will be a fun thing to do uh to like to improve the place that I'm living I think that would be kind of um a a common feeling like that would be a common activity as a kid to go engage in projects like that yeah, and I mean, we already see children doing that, right? Except they do it in Minecraft. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Like, the impulse like, is being 
directed somewhere currently. This isn't a thing you have to this isn't a thing you have to like splice into kids' little brains to make them want to do it. Kids love making shit. Exactly. Like you give a child an opportunity and you sort of facilitate that, like they are very a lot of them, I can't really generalize <laughs> because I know some kids were like, Oh, you do what you gotta do. I wanna stay in my corner. But there are a lot of kids as well who would be like very, very willing to be helpful, you know? They really like they just adore being a helper and being someone who can support, whether it be in the kitchen, you know, with like a little broom yeah. or whatever, sweeping, whatever the case may be. So some like kids don't want to be part of a community, you know, because we are social animals. Um, it's just that right now it's directed at like Minecraft servers or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think one, one of the things that I would really focus on, because this is just kind of in my experience is teaching young kids how to cook um, and then having them cook or at least help cook food for other people. I think it's a really great kind of skill to learn, but also it, it, it does this weird thing to your brain when you do that. It's like you, you get very happy when you cook food for, uh, for other people. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a really good kind of emotional impulse to give kids. It's like, hey, this is, you can make people feel good by doing things for them. Um, and because that makes you feel good and it makes them feel good. And then that really builds that whole sense of community. So yeah, I, I, I it, it cultivates selflessness. Yeah. Yeah. So some, it, some, some it, kids it, could be a little egomaniacs, you know? but like, but, but like both selflessness, but it also teaches you to like do stuff for yourself as well. Right. It's a good skill yeah. to be self, to also be self sustaining. So I think that that's why I, I really enjoy teaching kids cooking. Um, I, I used to I, I used to be a culinary instructor because I, I I'm really just passionate about that specific thing. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, um, I develop an aneurysm whenever anyone's in the kitchen with me. Yes, <laughs> there, I, I, there is definitely moments where if there's too many people in a kitchen, that is frustrating. But if if you do it right, you can get you can get a 13 year old cooking you an entire like really really nice holiday dinner. Um, which is That's what true. I, which is what I was doing when I was thirteen. I was cooking all of the holiday dinners for my entire family, um, because yeah. I just I wanted to learn cooking. So it's it's definitely possible if you're a parent and you want less time in the kitchen, uh, teach your kid how to cook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I come from a family of child cooks, right? I remember um, this one time. I think I was making like a carrot cake with my mom, um, but. I was used to like licking my fingers when, yeah. you know, you make that cookie, cookie dough and stuff. Yeah. But I licked my fingers when the, when I cracked the egg. Oh, oh boy. And she was like, stop, you can't do that, you know? <laughs> so I just remember that was one of the experiences in the kitchen that really stood out to me. Um, there were a lot of be, other lessons. Lessons will be learned about like bacteria um, yeah, uh, you know, it's like really safety. it's a holistic learning experience. N- you know, knives. Yeah, you, you get get to learn how to use knives. You get to learn about heat. You know, there's yeah. a, lo- a lot of a lot of good lessons you can learn inside. A, get a science, setting. safety, chemistry. You know, yeah, like a whole yeah, bunch of stuff all mixed in there. You know, even math. <laughs> even absolutely fractions. It's one of the only times I use fractions is in cooking and baking. Yeah, um, I mean. As embarrassing as it is, I, I use Google when I want to convert measurements still. <laughs> but I mean, it's just there. It's more convenient. But yeah, I absolutely agree with that example. You know, Like the use of like cooking lessons and that sort of thing to support um, 
to support like kids self-actualization and also like community actualization because of my experience the, the, the thing i default to is different versions of like the youth liberation argument but because of how people have been right. using that term on Twitter right now, I don't want to talk about it because <laughs> it's been causing a lot of like really dumb fighting about what that term actually means and who coined yeah. it and like that kind of stuff. But that's kind of where I default to in terms of like what self-actualization could be in a community setting. Youth liberation is one of those things uh, I'm really passionate about. Um, and I honestly don't know who coined it or what discourse is happening about it right now. But it definitely um, informs my approach and ends up influencing like a lot of the things that I discuss. Like yeah. whenever I talk about like an issue or whatever um, in society, a lot of times it really boils down or starts from an early age or it starts through the education system or is fostered there or um, incubated there. So I think um, a lot more discussion should be happening about, you know, the place of young people and the education system and stuff um, alongside, of course, all the other struggles and discussions and discourses about struggles we've been having. Yeah, I'm just trying to view, like, anarchistic, like, liberatory frameworks as, like, trying to achieve that self-actualization and to some degree, like, the, the like esteem level and then also, like, the community and belonging level um, even if you don't have all of your physical needs met all the time, is how these types of frameworks can be, can almost just like jump around that and be like, despite me not having all of these base needs met, if I if I have like a radical model of the world, I can still try to achieve that type of freedom because I can work outside the box to get it. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I think that that that's kind of what I was I was trying to get at, is yeah. at least on you know like a, like a like whether it be like a youth lib framework or just like general like radical anarchism in general. Yeah, and I mean, parts of thinking outside the box involves you know looking at other people who have thought outside the box, who have reinvented and reconsidered and sort of transformed their approach to things like education childcare and really all the aspects of society that we take for granted as, you know, just being a certain way, you know, um, when we talk about things like education and childhood and the place that plays in, uh, community actualization, I tend to think a lot about, you know, all the things we can do to not fit into cap, into capitalist molds, you know, to really facilitate folks' potential, not just through the cooking classes, for example, but even through, you know, workshops and, Field trips, I mean, field trips now are just kind of like this thing that, you know, kids go to from time to time and they have to walk in a single file line and all these different things. But what I envision when I think of, you know, learning is something more akin to like less restriction to just the four walls of a classroom and more the whole world is your classroom. You yeah, know, the whole yeah. world is a place where, you know, you can explore and you can roam and you can develop yourself, you know, without all these barriers and controls that we place on kids that end up suffocating their imagination of what things can be. And I mean, when you have that sort of educational model where, 
you know, the youth are able to explore different avenues and direct their own education routes. You know, you also end up, which is what has happened in education models that we've seen throughout many different cultures of the world. You see that it facilitates relationships with the community members, right? And everybody benefits because you have, for example, wasn't exactly something like apprenticeships and you have, you know, for example, people getting support from the kids in the kitchen or, you know, in the workshop or in the library or wherever the case may be. And not only the kids developing their skills, but they're also developing relationships with different members of the community, with different backgrounds, with different experiences. And it really serves almost as, I see it as a way to guard against um, this sort of style of parenting where that we've kind of seen popularized lately, where like the child is basically the exclusive property of the parent and you can't tell anybody how to raise their child and the parent always knows best and that kind of approach. I think it's a good antidote to that because the child being exposed to a lot more of life and of people. Um, I think that to me um, is the sort of youth liberation route that I see uh, developing. It requires, of course, a total transformation, but, you know, no proposal could really be approached in isolation. Yeah, and it's it's easier to achieve when you're around other, right? It's, it's easier to achieve once, if, if you are already in a community where these things can be fostered, then it's a lot, you know, it's a lot less of a lofty goal. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's a kind of interesting, I don't know if case study is the right word, but there, there's part of Italy that had a really, really long running like anarchist education experiments. And so they were basically able to sort of reform local school systems and and it worked, but you know, and they, they produced a bunch of really good schools and you know, the schools are based on sort of like cooperative learning, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, the model still exists today, but, the, and you know, it's like, yeah, they, they made some of the best schools in Europe, but the society around them didn't change. And so sort of bizarrely, they ended up making these schools that like produced you know, they're very good schools. They produce extremely good students, but then they also like produce an extremely, you know, well-educated and good, like capitalist cadre basically. And so <laughs> I, th I think there's a sort of, you know, if we, if we go back to sort of the community aspect of this is like, yeah, there's, there's an extent to which even, even if you have, you know, you, you, you get some form of self-actualization, you get some form of sort of, you know, communal and cooperative, like education for children and stuff like that. The, the the whole society has to move with it, or otherwise, you just wind up sort of feeding the beast more effectively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that you you also see that kind of problem with like the WeWork guys, right? The uh, uh, Adam Newman and 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 uh, the the two co founders of that came out of in Adam's case a kibbutz in Israel, which you know started with from kind of socialist foundations. And the other founder had grown up in like a commune in rural Oregon, uh, and they both wound up making like this ultra capitalist real estate company. So yeah, if you, it's it's you know there's a lot that's said, and there's there's a lot of value in kind of like carving out sections of of culture uh, for the things you believe in to try to um, get shelter from the storm. But yeah, as you were kind of noting, Chris, 
um it does it does also just wind up kind of reinforcing the dominant social system um if there's not a kind of more basic upheaval of of the way things work yeah if there's no you know political philosophy and the goodness and there's no connection with you know broader social movements and sort of confederation with other projects you know it could very easily be co-opted you know in isolation yeah, and I guess I guess that's you know like that that's what happened to self actualization as a concept for the most part, is that it got taken over by kind of weird grifters and yeah, like, like self care. Yeah, yeah. And take these concepts and just sort of twist it and transform it into, um, you know, capitalist ends. It's even something like um. Like with, there's been some interesting discussions happening surrounding like luxury and what luxury means around certain, um, within certain circles on Twitter. Um, and Kim, um, Kimberly Foster from For Harriet, excellent YouTube channel. Um, she mentioned that to her at least in this long but really good video, she spoke about how luxury to her was basically, um, you know, finding the, the ability to rest when you need to rest and to be able to be supported. Um, whereas luxury now, well, luxury as by popular understanding is more so about consumption and consumerism. So even when you have something where like, and this is specific to um, the black experience, of course, because for a long time, you know, black women have been expected to like, um, toil and labor and support not only their communities but also you know during the era of slavery also you know their white masters and that kind of thing um, there's, there was a push for the black women luxury movement to sort of reclaim you know a space for black women to just be able to enjoy themselves and you know be themselves but that quickly became something it was just like, oh, you know, just get the bag. Um, just the sort of hyper-capitalist, hyper-consumerist, bougie kind of approach to luxury, where the original roots of the movement, which was about finding rest, was sort of lost. And I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, so I'll try to connect that back to what we're saying. Um, I think when it comes to things like rest and the ability to rest, um, I think that that can only really be found in community. And if there is a lack of community support to, you know, pick up the slack when you need to rest and you need to revive yourself and you just need to recharge. Um, barring that, of course, rich people can pay for a sort of a full community in the sense of having, you know, nannies and maids and butlers and tutors and all these people to basically support their lifestyles and support their freedoms. But most people lack that. And so I think part of self-actualization, as you we mentioning earlier, um, is the ability to rest. And I see that as linked with community, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I th think that definitely ties into our recent discussions on anti-work and how anti-work is a lot more 
feasible if you are in a community support like network and right and you have people to rely on um yeah and definitely like you know self-actualization as the ability to t- like to just rest when you want to is a very uh is a very powerful uh thing and very enticing and that definitely plays into the whole like anti-work like uh I- idea i guess yeah i mean to connect the anti-work thing to just general you know, unionization and striking efforts, right? Like I was seeing people calling for a general strike the other day. Um, yeah. As if we haven't learned a lesson. But um, they were calling for that. But what they were not realizing was that without these structures in place to support striking efforts, it's not going to be enough. You know, if people yep. cannot support themselves and their families, the strike cannot last. You know, it's only with this community and with the community coming together to support people can they, you know, not just fight for their rights in the striking and unionization context, but also, you know, to be able to find leisure, to find rest, as with the, you know, anti-work discussion. And to sort of turn this to a discussion on organizing more generally, um, you know, we are, at the end of the day, a very communal ape and if we were to just focus on ourselves as individuals um i think as capitalism in its antisocial nature expects us to i think we would all suffer as a result you know our goal as people as any one person should be not just to you know uplift ourselves but also to enrich the worlds of those around us and to cultivate the community that as we support, they, you know, will support us. And I mean, as we prefigure this sort of, you know, culture of support, of, you know, care and of empathy and that sort of thing, um, I think our organizing efforts would, as a result, be a lot more powerful, be a lot more potent, um, be a lot more enriching, and a lot more imaginative. So, unless any any of you have anything else to say, um, to sort of bring this to a close, um, I just want to leave... leave us with some food for thought in terms of how we can incorporate community actualization in action, right? Because it's one thing to say, oh, it'd be wonderful to have a community to support you and that kind of thing. But, you know, um, a lot of people are pretty isolated on stuff right now. Um, So I guess I actually put it into sort of a five-stage kind of uh, approach, starting with, firstly, facilitating collective belonging among diverse groups, right? So we want to look at bringing people together. Obviously, they would have different backgrounds and different needs, different wants, different personalities, but bring people together, um, whether it be at work or on the block or at school or whatever the case may be, just 
for a cookout or for a lime or any kind of party or interaction, obviously, depending on where you are, that may, be the, that may not be the safest thing to do, um, considering COVID and everything. But to just bring people together, not even necessarily to proselytize to them about anarchism or socialism or whatever, but at the very least, start connecting the nodes and start connecting the different parts that can eventually come together to become something greater, you know? I mean, you don't need to wait for a calamity for this sort of thing to happen. But of course, we have seen as well where natural disasters have brought communities together that weren't together before. Um, I think, however, it'd be better to like not wait for that kind of thing to happen and to just, you know, bring people together from now start some conversations, get things going, right? And then from there, you want to be facilitating solidarity in struggle, right? So whether it be, you know, solidarity is a bit of a buzzword now, or at least it's become a buzzword. But I think whether it be with you know, disaster relief funds or solidarity strikes and protests or, you know, with basic mutual aid support, you know, whether it's material or emotional solidarity in struggle, I think that is another crucial part in, you know, building community and incorporating eventually community actualization. Because what that does is it shows others that I have your back and, you know, others able to see that, you know, they can have mine as well. Um, it helps to build that sense of trust. Uh, you also want to sort of cultivate probably a sense of community pride and a sense of being able to rely on community networks. So, you know, we spoke about mutual aid networks, but also things like um, skill shares or workshops or um, material support. You know, if somebody needs food, being able to support it. For them to know that they have people they can go to to support them in a time of need, that is powerful. You know, not many people forget that. Not many people forget the time that they were at their most dire point and you know their community stepped up to support them you know if you want to see a insurrection in our lifetimes um you don't start guns blazing you know you start with a creative food you start with a helping hand you start with money if people need it um and then from there you know you get into the realm of community achievements where your community is collectively able to celebrate the things that you all have accomplished together. You know, whether it be establishing a community garden that is able to supplement people's um, fresh produce supply or whether it be that, you know, your community has come together and they've fixed something that was broken on the street or even that they've come together and we're able to train people with like some really helpful skills where they're now able to support themselves and bring other things to the table as well. And then from there, I think that sort of approach would foster fulfillment in community and prefigures community actualization. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is all... It's a big topic, um, and it's a much bigger topic than just like 
what uh what do you what changes do you want to make around the edges like what things should people advocate for or even just like advocating that that the system be torn down like as as was kind of evident when you asked how could we build uh a a, a community in which like kids feel more self actualization from engaging in the community um and there was that kind of blank moment the the when you actually talking talk about like reconfiguring society at such a fundamental level um it's it's a big topic um and it's yeah. it's one that i think it's important to introduce to people the idea that like hey we really ought to be we really got to figure this this out this is this is important to like everything we we say we believe um answering this question is going to be key uh and it's 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 a tough one. Um, so I don't know. I think sometimes uh, people come into episodes we do on stuff like this, like looking for, OK, well, how how are you? Wh what's your suggestion for how to do that? And at the moment, like I agree with the how imperative this is. Um, but in terms of actionable stuff, it's um, this is a, 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 a big open ended question in my head. I mean, I, I think I think Andrew laid out a lot of the stuff that we've we've talked about, both like you know, with within our kind of own community groups, yeah. In terms of the the things, in terms of like like you know, like connecting nodes and all like the steps that we can do to have there be like more like more connecting branches of the tree and how to strengthen those. I think that it's it's a good yeah. It's like we can't we don't know what your community is like. Or what your or what your situation is. So all we can really say is, here's the broad things that that you can try or have worked for other people in the past, and then based on what your situation is, you can apply those plug pluggables. Yeah, <laughs> you want to plug your <laughs> pluggables, Saint Andrew? Yes, of course. Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Saint Drew, and of course on YouTube Saint Andrewism. Check all out right. my stuff. You know, I have uh, the video on rethinking Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, and some other fun practices -y things as well. So check it out. Check it out. Um, and uh, uh, stay thinking about stuff. <laughs> yeah, thinking is good. Yeah, thinking is good. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us. 
to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian cocktail maker, it's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all natural bitters, so dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and sort of how you can put them back together this is again another mostly things fall apart episode um here with me is garrison hello hello and joining us today to talk about well a a pretty wide range of things but about the drug war in mexico about paramilitaries and i guess also i guess about the narco state is alex avenia who is an associate professor of history at arizona state university and has written several very very good articles that i've read recently um, Alex, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I, I wanted to start by talking about an article that you fi- uh, has uh, come out fairly recently uh, that is about essentially the transition, particularly in Guerrero, from... I guess the, the, the sort of 60s, 70s uh, dirty war in Mexico to the drug war and i i guess i wanted to start from because I, I don't i don't think this is a history that's particularly well known um i i want to i guess start with sort of an overview of how we got into the sort of dirty war in mexico in the 60s because i think i don't know like i think if anyone if people know stuff about this it tends to be the very dramatic sort of like massacre in 1968 but it's been, it went on for longer than that and has a sort of deeper history. So can you bring us into that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so if, well, I'll start off by saying that generally, if when most people think about dirty wars and, and, and Cold War Latin America, uh, Mexico is probably the last country that they think yeah. of having one, right? Like there's a certain exceptionalism that Mexico has enjoyed until relatively recent, uh, into, relatively recently. Um, 
amongst academics and, and especially historians, right, where we're in the last 10, 20 years, we started to uncover Mexico's own version of a dirty war that we are more familiar with in other places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, mm -hmm. Uruguay, etc. Um, Mexico's dirty war, though, and, and if people know a little bit about this period, like as you mentioned, right, they know about the, the infamous student massacre of Tlatelolco on October 2nd, 1968. But you know, my my research focuses on on this the southern state of Guerrero. It's on the Pacific coast. It's made famous by the resort city of Acapulco. And I wrote a book in twenty four published a book in twenty fourteen that really traced the emergence of armed resistance in the state of Guerrero during the nineteen sixties and seventies. And, and that was my entrance into this idea of a of a Mexican dirty war of the Mexican state practicing systematic state terrorism against political dissidents. And in my case, armed guerrilla dissidents um, who enjoyed the backing of dozens of rural communities um, and even urban poor working class neighborhoods in places like Acapulco in the late 60s and, and, and early 1970s. That's a very regional story, right? That's another thing that kind of distinguishes the, the Mexican Dirty War from, from other Latin American cases is that uh, the Dirty War was localized to uh, a few major cities and then to, to very specific locales in the countryside, Guerrero being the, the most bloody theater. Um, the, the way that these uh, guerrilla movements emerged, they really began as these popular civic-minded social movements uh, in the late 50s, early 1960s, and, and, and they protested things like political authoritarianism and economic injustice. But they did so essentially within the confines of the Mexican constitution. They followed the law. Um, you know, Mexico has the, the you know, that, that, that characteristic in Latin America of having the first great social revolution of the 20th century. Um, you, you do have a post-revolutionary government that emerges from the 19 revo 1910 revolution that has to pay lip service to the radical traditions, to the revolutionary traditions that came out of that, that, you know, that movement. And for that reason, the Mexican constitution that, that was passed in 1917 in its time was the most radical social democratic even, uh, constitution in the Western hemisphere. Um, and, uh, you know, peasant communities, campesino communities in the state of Guerrero believed the letter of the law. So when they started to protest, you know, a, a authoritarian state governors, um, a police violence, army violence, economic injustice in the 60s, they followed the rules and they followed the laws. And each time that they did so, they experienced pretty horrific instances of both state violence exercised by the military and the police, but also everyday forms of violence practiced by, you know, gunslingers who were working for landed elites. And that then radicalized some of these social movements into two separate guerrilla movements that were led by rural communist school teachers, Genaro Vasquez and Lucio Cabañas. And Lucio Cabañas's movement in particular, the Party of the Poor, they ended up creating a guerrilla force of about, the high estimates about 300 fighters. A more realistic estimate is, is somewhere from 150 to 200. But the, the key is that in coastal Guerrero and in some of the mountains, mountain communities of Guerrero, they obtain a, lot, a pretty substantial amount of popular support, which then leads the Mexican government that had been you know, ruled by the PRI and it was ruled, Mexico was ruled by the PRI for like 80 years. Uh, they sent in the military and they waged this pretty horrific counterinsurgency that, that did things like disappear people, torture, rape. Um, you know, they raised entire communities. Um, and that's generally what's known as the dirty war in Mexico. It's rural theater. Its main rural theater was in a place like Guerrero where you, we think there was almost a thousand disappearances from 1969 up until the early 1980s. Yeah. And what, one of the things that, that interested me a lot sort of reading through this was that 
it's sort of weird for an insurgency in that you, you get aspects of both kind of the, the, the kind of like classical 70s urban guerrilla movement, but it's also a, like it's a very much a real movement. You have, you know, I mean, like one, one of the stories you tell in this is about, you know, like a, a group a group of people who did one of the, you know, like the, the, the classic urban 70s thing, which is that, you know, they, 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 did, they did a bank robbery. And then two people get tortured and the real guerrillas sort of get hunted down. And I was I was wondering about the the dynamics of this, because it seems like like there, there's it seems like you have these groups that are kind of unusually moving back and forward between like having bases in cities and having bases in these rural areas. Yeah, that's one. of the, So usually when 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 folks think about these these guerrilla movements in Guerrero during the 60s and 70s, they think of them primarily as as a, as a you know, very fairly typical rural guerrilla movement, as, as you just described. But it, these two movements, the one led by Lucio Cabañas, the Party of the Poor, the other one by Genaro Vázquez, the ACNR, Asociación Cívica Nacional Revolucionaria, from the very onset, they tried to connect the rural to the city, um, whether it was cities in, in Guerrero, like um, the resort city of Acapulco, particularly working class neighborhoods on the outside of the city, or the state capital in Chilpancingo, which housed the state university, right? So both of these movements made pretty substantial inroads into that community. And then also into Mexico City, right? So they tried, their idea was not necessarily to start as a strictly, uh, as a strictly rural movement, but their idea was always to expand because I think to the cities. And I think quite rightly, they, they perceived that what the Mexican state was going to do to them was try to corral them in the state of Guerrero and prevent mm. them from logistically and politically expanding beyond that. And in the end, they were, that's exactly what happened. Um, and that's how these movements were ruthlessly crushed. That, and it took a lot of terror to, to um, separate these armed movements from their popular base of support. But a lot of this has to do with the fact that both Vasquez and Cabañas were school teachers. Mm-hmm. And they were involved in union movements that were national in scope. Um, they were in move, they were in, you know, Lucio Cabañas was in the Mexican Communist Party, right? So he had extensive urban experiences and, and networks throughout the country. Uh, so their perspective was always to connect the rural to the urban, particularly because Mexico by the 70s was a rapidly urbanizing country, right? Yeah. It was going, to, it becomes for the first time in its history, well, first time in its post-colonial history, it becomes primarily yeah. an urban country. So um, so they, they, they tried these really interesting um, experiments to try to connect the, the two theaters. But as you, as you mentioned, right, they did that typical 1970s thing of uh, robbing banks and their terminology was expropriation, right? Um, but that, that then exposed them to, to police actions. And, and anytime any of their militants were captured, they were immediately tortured, information, you know, the, they were interrogated horrifically. And that inf- intel was used to, to hunt down their, 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 uh, their comrades up in the mountains in Guerrero. Yeah, and I think that that's a good place to move towards sort of the other side of this, which is partially the Mexican state response, but the the, the part the part of it that was really interesting to me was about how, you know, so so part 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 of what these groups are fighting are these sort of very very local, like sort of landed elites, and I I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these sort of local elites merge are able to merge with and sort of like co-opt in a lot of ways the the military units that are uh, deployed yeah that's one of the the biggest so let me see how i can answer this question because there's there's so it what, what i what i try to do in this article and it's part of my broader re- ongoing research is to kind of connect the the violence the state violence of the mexican dirty war as it as, as it happens in guerrero in the 70s with 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 something else that's happening simultaneously which is like the so-called drug war 
and the exponentially increasing cultivation of drugs in a place like Guerrero, particularly marijuana, and then um, opium poppies that are used to produce heroin. Um, so what I try to do in the article that, that you're referencing is kind of to show there's a longer history in Guerrero of, of how power ex is exercised at the local level and how some of these local landed elites are able to weather the 1910 Mexican revolution. They're able to weather the agrarian reform efforts that, that um, occurred in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and, and really these, these families, like one of the, the things that, that captures my attention of, of Guerrero is that uh, you can tell who's in power by just by almost by looking at their last name, because there's this remarkable continuity in the state of who has managed to exercise power at the local level, political, social, and economic power. Um, for decades now, for generations. Um, and, and you can track how power works by looking at families. And, in, and what I do in this article is to look at a couple of landed elite families that had managed to stay in power for decades. Um, so there's certain that landed, uh, in this article, I focus on one municipality called Coyuca de Catalan, which is in the hot lands region of Guerrero. Um, during, you know, probably from about 2008 to 2015, it was in the top three in Mexico for opium and, and heroin production. So it becomes this massive uh, uh, drug producing region. So I go back in time and I kind of trace like who was in power in this region, who owned land, who owned the resources throughout the 20th century and, and how they were responsible for essentially creating this little narco fiefdom as it currently exists and, and trying to figure out which families were involved. So on the one hand, you have these families that have been in power from like the 1920s and 30s and they're still exercising power. And then when we get to the 1970s and you have this, this horrific dirty war, this counterinsurgency that the state and the military are waging against communities in Guerrero, that opens up new possibilities for new families to come in and to ally themselves with locally stationed uh, uh, military units. And they work together to wipe out guerrillas and, and guerrilla supporters. At, and at the same time, they start to you know, kind of dip their toe into this, this world of, of narcotics production. Because really Mexico in the 1970s, especially by the mid 1970s, it becomes a number one provider of, of, of marijuana and heroin to the United States. Um, and this is part of just a, a broader global history of narcotics, right? There's US-led uh, drug interdiction efforts in places like Turkey, Afghanistan, and in, the, in Southeast Asia, and efforts to suppress the dr drug production there creates this, you know, what, what, what people usually refer to as a balloon effect. Uh, it just displaces the drug production somewhere else because the demand in the US is still there. And that, and that creates, in Mexico, the number one provider of narcotics by the mid-1970s. And that then has an impact locally in the place of Guerrero, which is, again, simultaneously experiencing a guerrilla insurgency, a dirty war, and then also the ramping up of drug production. One of the most interesting parts of this that I didn't know about was about how I mean, very, like how, how explicitly, because you know, I've read a lot of, well, not a lot, but I've, I've read about a lot of how particularly like after like when when the sort of after sort of the, the the various upheavals in 2006 in Mexico with the Oaxaca uprising with the Zapatistas making a bunch of moves and the, the CP to presidential election about how you get the drug war as this sort of like military solution to these leftist movements but I, I was interested in how I mean incredibly explicit they are about this like the 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 anti-guerrilla operations are like they don't call them anti-guerrilla operations they, they 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 talk about like bandits and like they, 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 they're explicitly like, no, 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 this is an anti-narco operation, even though, you know, they're going and massacring like essentially peasants and occasionally guerrillas, but just a bunch of just yeah. random like campesinos. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a there's a a, a great quote that I got from for in this article. Um, you know, there's this wonderful researcher in Mexico, Carlos Flores, who has a really good book on kind of like the uh, the failed state in Mexico and, and drugs and military. And in that study, he managed to interview a, a military participant in the dirty war in the 1970s. And he, he has this great quote that I included in this essay, in which he says, this military guy says, basically, look, with the marijuana growers, we had no problem. We had no beef. Uh, but with the gorillas, we had to fuck them up. And, and for me, like that, that direct quote kind of encapsulates like what the drug war in Mexico has been historically and in its current form. Like, and this is something that I learned from people like sociologist and journalist Don Paley, right? Like the war on drugs is a war on poor people. Um, and and it, be, it becomes in the 1970s, it becomes a really useful cover for the type of horrific violence that the state is practicing in, in, in a place like Guerrero against these popularly supported guerrilla insurgencies. So publicly and to the international audience and to its own domestic national audience, the, the Mexican state is saying, look, we're not waging a dirty war. We're not waging a counterinsurgency. We're fighting a war against cattle rustlers, against cattle thieves, and against criminals, against drug dealers. Um, when in reality, they're waging a war against poor people who are supporting these different guerrilla insurgencies led by these rural communist school teachers. Um, so that's, and that's in the rural theater, right? It's, it's really interesting when you think about how uh, the Mexican state in the 70s will criminalize urban guerrilla movements. You know, Mexico had like 38 guerrilla movements in the 1960s and 70s. That's just like people don't really recognize that, right? Like 38 to 40 different rural and urban guerrilla organizations. The big urban one that managed to create, I don't know, 10 to 12 different uh, focos or foci uh, um, was the Liga Comunista 23 de Septiembre, the, the Communist League of the 20th, 23rd of September. Um, they became such a big threat in the urban theater that the Mexican president, Luis Echeverria, devoted his 1974 State of the Union, basically the Mexican version of the State of the Union, he devoted a pretty good chunk of it to these quote-unquote terrorists, right? So for the urban guerrillas, he referred to them as terrorists. And then he does this thing where he says, you know, most of these terrorists are unpatriotic. They, and I'm going to paraphrase some of his language, they reveal high indices of homosexuality of <laughs> like just basically othering them to the point that they're seen as like the most despicable other in Mexico, in Mexican society. And that then opens them up to getting wiped out, um, which is, fulfills a similar function as calling the, the, the rural guerrillas, nothing more than cattle rustlers, cattle thieves and narcos. Right. So it's all this counterinsurgency, like discursive strategy that, that justifies the elimination of these people. But at bottom, these are just wars against the drug war is a war against poor people. And, and you see that to this day, you see that, you know, most, one of the things that really animates my research about the history of drug wars in Mexico is that I really want to push back against, you know, journalistic treatments that, that will say, look, Mexico's war on drugs began in 2006 when President Felipe Calderon, way, you know, launched the military against these different drug trafficking organizations. And, it, you know, historians um, like, like myself who work on this were like, wait, no, Mexico's had a series of drug yeah. wars. Right. The, the, there's a historian, Alec Dawson, who talks about has a really excellent book on peyote. And he talks about how the war on drugs begins in like the colonial era. Right. In terms of how the Spanish colonial state criminalized uh, indigenous consumption of, of drugs like peyote for for their own ritualistic cultural practices. Um, the 1970s is another moment where you have a, a form of, uh, of drug war that the Mexican state exercises. But from my perspective, it's just uh, it's almost like a cover as a way to wage war against political dissidents and, and armed guerrilla challenges to its rule in Mexico. Yeah, and, and I think that's an that's an important way of looking at it also as just 
a way to understand why, you know, like if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of like a policymaker, it's like, oh, well, we spent all this time doing the war on drugs. Like, why are there more drugs? And it's like, well, yeah, because I mean, the, the point isn't really about like, I mean, yeah, and, and I think, I, okay, I, I want to make a caveat here, which is like, it, it's not like there's a, such a thing as like a quote unquote good war on drugs that you could wage. Like there, there's no, there isn't a version of this that's like, oh no, if, if, if we actually just tried to like focusing on stopping these people, it would work. But it's like, no, but simultaneously, yeah, it, it's that the, 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 the goal isn't really about like, it's not about drugs. It's just about killing poor people. And I th- yeah, I think that that's, that's a good way of framing it. And it, I think also it's an interesting way of looking at why you start to see these sort of supposedly like anti-narco units just immediately start doing like immediately get into the trade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, cause they're like, they're positioned to make a ton of money off of it. Yeah. Right? Like it's, yeah, they're not dumb. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I don't know. There's this interesting question about like the structure of the state here too, because you know, like like in Chicago, this is another like this is the thing that happens all the time. Is yeah, you get these you get these anti drug units that are you know incredibly specialized. They get a bunch of money, and then they immediately turn around and start, and start like just do like just enter, enter into the drug trade. And so I, I was one of the other things. Yeah, I was just been interested in this of just about th- there's th- there's seems to be these these very. <sighs> These these very interesting sort of alliances between paramilitaries, cartels, the police, and the military that open up. And I uh, this this I know this is an incredibly broad like it's a question you can like you know devote academic disciplines to. But I was wondering how how you look at the state in the context in in a context like this because yeah I mean in, in a context where you know it's not the state doesn't really have monopoly on violence. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a huge question. And there's how you, I mean, essentially the question is like, what is the state? Which is like, yeah. that question <laughs> always terrorizes me. Yeah. Uh, and how you answer that question then leads, has consequences to how we think about things like the drug war or, you know, violence in Mexico or a variety of different things. Right. But so the, what I, what I do in this article is on Coyuca de Catalan is, is to just simply look at what the state looks like at the local level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly like it's repressive apparatuses and what you see in a place like Coyuca de Catalan, because you, know, you see kind of like, uh, it, it's a multi-scalar uh, uh, issue, right? Where mm-hmm. you have generations of conflicts over land and land tenure and who gets to control rural markets who gets to control access to rural markets and rural production, right? So there's already like a built-in structure that's exploitative that has somehow managed to weather uh, a, a big social revolution and agrarian reform effort. And on top of that, then in the 60s and 70s, you get uh, you know industrialized uh, narcotics production placed on top of this pre-existing structure, right? So it's should be no, it's almost like no surprise then that you know the gunslingers that used to work for land elites will now serve as not just gunslingers for landed elites who are terrorizing campesinos, but now they're also going to work with like local narcotic, uh, you know, narco farmers, drug farmers and, and traffickers. And then at the same time, they're going to do their best to co-op, to buy off, you know, military units that are stationed at the local level, police units that are stationed at the local level, local judges, local magistrates, local political officials. And, and it, be, it creates a very um, dense network at the local level 
of people who are working together uh, to maintain power, but at the same time, uh, make sure that this really profitable political economy of narcotics is going to thrive. And, and this is at the very local level, right? So in some in some ways, those local interests of the quote unquote the state are will conflict with the state in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah. And how to resolve those tensions and becomes a big deal. So the the guy that the military participant that I referenced earlier, he was he was actually sent in from outside of Guerrero into Guerrero to wage counterinsurgency. And you know, he talks in this book about how they didn't know what to do when they see their soldier comrades, uh, you know, obviously collaborating with local narcos, even though the although this guy and his unit have been sent in to wipe out the narcos. So what ends up happening is is that the, the goal is never to eradicate the 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 from a national level, from a state national level, the goal is never to eradicate the drug trade in Mexico in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The goal is to rationalize it. The goal is to to control it. And, and the goal is for the state to be able to maintain power over it. And this is, it leads us to what, you know, some scholars will refer to as a plaza system, right? That, that, that different narcotic organ, trafficking organizations will control different parts of Mexico, but the overall power, you know, they have to kick back to um, is our different state officials. Um, and that, you know, there's a recent really great book uh, by Ben Smith called The Dope that just came out. It's really like the first really good English language, big history of, of the Mexican drug trade. And, and he essentially, he says that like the, the, the Mexican state is, is a racket. It's a racket and it's ensuring that this drug trade exists and it's centralized and it's rationalized in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, but by the 90s, it starts to lose control as the state itself is neoliberalized and becomes smaller. And its capacity to control these different groups um, becomes uh, uh, weakened. So, so that's like the big national level, right? And then we can that takes us to the scale of the international, which is a whole other thing. But at the very local level, what does this look like? It looks like if you're a drug farmer, right? Because another thing in Guerrero is that these drug farmers are like small scale, right? They're they're small scale. They have a little bit of autonomy, but they're small scale. Uh, but they're selling their product to these traffickers, and these are the traffickers usually that will have connections to local landed families, who will have connections to military, to police, to politicians, um, that will ensure that this economy will, will, will continue to thrive in a, in, a, in a profitable way. By the late 70s, and this is something else I think that I, I need to do a little bit more research on, but you see it happen elsewhere in Mexico, and I, especially in the Northwest in a place like Sinaloa, which is usually seen as the cradle of the Mexican drug trade. But I think in the late 70s, both in Sinaloa and in Guerrero, the dirty war and, and, the, and the sending of the military in mass in a place like Guerrero, it not only takes out armed resistance to the Mexican state, but it will also take out small scale narco traffickers who don't want to play. They don't like the rules that the Mexican state is imposing upon them in order to make mm. money and traffic drugs. Um, so I've seen a couple of documents where, um, you know, secret police spy agent uh, documents where they say, OK, yes. You know, these, these campesinos who are accused of being guerrillas, yes, we are disappearing them, but apparently some small-scale drug traffickers are also being disappeared because they're not, they don't want to go along with the rules being imposed by the Mexican military. And that's something that you see in, in Sinaloa in the late 70s when something called Operation Condor gets launched and you get thousands of troops and federal police who go up there. And instead of eradicating the drug trade and getting rid of, of these different uh, traffickers, what they do is they centralize it, they rationalize it, um, they make it more efficient. I um, mean, that actually, it's a, so it's in a, in, a, in a counterintuitive way, it's state violence 
that actually leads to the formation of things that we think about as cartels and, and not the other way around, right? Because uh, the, the very trade uh, begins within the confines of the Mexican state. And in part two of this interview, we're going to drill deeper into that question and look at how the state's attempt to get in on the drug trade created the cartels and how they sort of lost control of them, leading to an incredible increase in paramilitary violence and death and destruction. And on that happy note, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, join us again tomorrow for that. And in the meantime, uh, stay safe and don't die. If you want to find us, we're at Happen Here Pod on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find other work that we do at Cools on Media on Twitter. If for some reason you can you want to continue venturing onto the hell sites. Goodbye. The following is a high five moment from high five casino.com. Like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off, no dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian Cocktail Maker? It's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all-natural bitters, so Dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So, for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is often and today about state and paramilitary violence. And we're back with part two of our interview with Alexander Avina about the state and paramilitary violence and the cartels in Mexico. The immediate thing I was thinking about this was it, it reminds me a lot of uh, some stuff I read a while back about like smuggling people over the border and about how the, the American militarization of that like destroyed because it, it used to like as as the U.S. tries to like make the border more and more unsafe, it became, becomes harder and harder. And it means that like the people who can actually do it, like, you know, you, you need to have access to more resources and more like technical capability and that sort of like and that that also in a lot of ways helped the cartels because you know it, well it's like okay so who who actually has a bunch of organizational expertise with smuggling routes and a lot of money and it's it's and i think that's a, like it's, a, it's an interesting way of looking at what the, the the national application of state power in these like does which is that like it it, 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 it seems almost like what's happening is that so when when you get these massive exertions of state power, it's not that they like flatten, like you know, it's not that they just sort of like wipe out all resistance. What they do is they, yeah, it's what, what you were saying is like they, they they centralize the drug trade, but they also they centralize the sort of violent apparatuses, and it means that yeah, like yeah, if 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 you're going to survive that, you have to be like incredibly efficient and incredibly violent, and you have to also sort of start. Like you, you, you have to start playing with it, like playing by the rules of the state of exception, which yeah. is, you know, and, and that's that's like how I guess the the violence level and the organizational centralization happens. Yeah, I think this right. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right, and I think it's also becomes part of the to add. I mean, so to add, you know, fuel to the fire even more so. It, it's it's become a strategy of like the DEA. And, and and counter narcotics forces in Mexico to to do what you just described, but then also to sow dissension amongst the different drug trafficking organizations, right? So um, that then also increases the violence, right? So if you can get, you know, it, it was it was pretty well known that El Chapo, for instance, the the leader of the Sinaloa cartel until recent, well, let's not say leader, one of the most prominent traffickers of the Sinaloa cartel until recently, like he was giving up people, he was giving information on rivals to the DEA and to other other um, Counter narcotics forces, right? And that's part of the strategy. The strategy is to fragment these groups, um, and that only increases the violence. And, it, and and you see that violence at the very localized level. Um, and this is what Guerrero is suffering from right now, right? Guerrero for a long time was under the control of one single drug trafficking organization slash family from the state of Sinaloa, the the Beltran Leivas, right? They used they were originally aligned with they're actually cousins with El Chapo Guzman's family. They had a falling out in the mid 2000s and they, and they went to war and that had disastrous consequences for the people of Guerrero because it fragmented uh, the drug trafficking organizations and it forced different local groups to take sides. Um, and and I, that's kind of how I end the article that, that you're referencing, right? Um, where different local groups start to take sides and that increases the, the, the level of violence at the local level and, and, and communities suffer greatly. Um, and that's also a consequence of like the kingpin strategy, right? Like this idea that if you take down the, the perceived leader of a drug trafficking organization that's somehow going to have an impact on drug production. Yeah. No, what actually happens is that it fragments the organization and it creates more violence at the local level. While at the same time, it gives a chance to like ex-DEA agents to go on like, you know, national media and be like, oh yes, the capture of El Chapo is going to have a great impact yeah. on the drug trade. No, it will not. Like it yeah, just and, increases and, the violence. And, and I think that the, the thing that, that that's very clear from this article, and I think it's clear if you 
you know, if you look at the drug trade, is it's like, no, it's 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 largely economic stuff. And like one of the things you're talking about is is, you know, is that these peasants who are the people who've been able to hold on to the collective land basically get forced by the land banks to like produce sesame, and it's like they can't make any money off of it. And I I I don't I don't know how directly it, it looked to me a lot like like that was directly one of the things that starts to to lead to the shift of the drug trade there because you have all these people locked into this crop that like just can't support them yeah yeah and it's it's just uh, the bigger story there is is really the failure of the the post-revolutionary mexican state to um to really help spur agricultural production at the level of of these small holding peasants and Mm -hmm. and these rural communities that are these ejidos who have received land from the mexican state um, if anything, most of the state subsidies and the state uh, structure, state support for agriculture from the 40s, you know, up until the 80s, that was all directed to big agro businesses uh, that were producing export crops in places like Sinaloa, right? They're producing winter crops for the American market or winter fruit for the American market, right? So in the absence of like meaningful state support for small holding agriculture, that small holding agriculture sector that is meant to feed Mexico, um, you know, some of these these farmers in a place like Coyuca de Catalan, they'll say, okay, well, we, we're growing this thing that the, the agricultural bank is telling us to grow sesame, but we're not making a lot of money off of it. But on the other hand, by the late 60s, they see that marijuana production is, is really increasing due to American demand. If I can do both things, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money and, and I'm going to allow my family to make a, a pretty good living while staying in the countryside, while not having to migrate to Mexico City or while not having to migrate to these agricultural fields in Northern Mexico or even into the United States. So because it's like really rational economic response to, to, to a broader macroeconomic situation that has put them in that position. The, and, and, and you still see this to this day, right? These, these small farmers, they, they still own their land. They'll grow certain crops on it. And it's almost serves as a shield for, um, you know, the opium poppies that they're growing on the same plot of land, mm-hmm. but in a part that's a little, you know, harder to access and it's a little bit more hidden, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's trying to find a way at a bottom to make a, a, a dignified, you know, how to make a life of dignity for your family when you're living in, a, in the countryside, when you're living in a place like Coyuca de Catalan and Guerrero. And, and then you see that, uh, you know, the gringos are going crazy over Acapulco gold in the late sixties. Um, and you have, uh, you know, North you know, gringo traffickers coming into Guerrero with new seeds. Um, or you have Sinaloenses coming into your state saying, you know, grow these, mar- here are some marijuana seeds, grow that strain, um, you know, and, and they can buy off, you know, local politicians and soldiers and, and, and police. That's that's one of the ways that you get the emergence of, of industrial proportion uh, production of marijuana and, and opium poppies in Guerrero in the 60s and, and 70s. And again, at the same time that this massive dirty war is being waged against two different peasant guerrilla movements, right? So it's like a really messy like social yeah. matrix that that's occurring at the same time. I, I guess one other thing I wanted to talk about was about how the political parties sort of work into this, because I guess like my, my experience with this, this sort of like the, the, the kind of like narco state fusions with like twenties and thirties China. And there it's like, like it, you're, you're, I don't know. I mean the, 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 the communists have an actual independent political base outside of like, like the green gang but like the kmt it's like like this is basically just a like like this like this is this is just like a narco organization with like a flag planted on it and i'm, I'm wondering yeah. how like on, on, on what end of this 
scale we're working with with the PRI and also also like with, with the other Mexican parties because it seems like there are like parts of like a functional state app like a, a party state apparatus or like a party apparatus and then parts of it that are just like this is a cartel yeah it's it, that's a huge question it's it's um yes yeah, i've really <laughs> resisted no, no no it's all good i've i've stopped understanding this within the framework of like a narco state right because to, to think about a narco state you really have to think about how a state was captured by these drug trafficking organizations. And, and I historically and currently, I don't think that describes what's, what's happening in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you what, and again, it goes back to the question of what is the state, right? Like that question is yeah, going to drive yeah. me. It's like, just, it's gonna, yeah, it's... I'm going to be thinking about this decades down the yep. road. Right. But cause you have, you know, you, have, it, it depends on what part of the Mexican state you're also referring to, right? So if we're yeah. talking about the military, the military has all segments of the military have always had an important role to play in the production and trafficking of, of narcotics from Mexico into the U.S. From the from like the 1910s, right? The military governor of Baja California, this guy by the name of Colo, uh, Colonel Esteban Cantu, he was helping uh, traffic uh, opium. Um, into the United States during the Mexican Revolution, right? And this has been a constant, right? Yeah. Um, the guys that I talk about in my article, this guy um, who ends up, he le- he's a general by the time he's he's arrested in, in 2002, but this guy, Mario Acosta Chaparro, he was like the main counterinsurgent theorist and, 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 and um, bright mind of the Mexican military that gets sent to Guerrero in the 70s to wipe out these different guerrilla movements. But he's, after they wipe out the guerrilla movements, he stays on, he serves as, as a kind of like the leader of the state police forces. And what do he start to do? He starts to buy up land, allegedly, that will start producing opium poppies and marijuana. And this guy from the late 70s up until he's arrested in 2000, it's pretty clear that had, he had been collaborating with different narco-trafficking organizations. He gets arrested by his own military um, in 2000 because he, it was pretty clear that he had been p- protecting and collaborating with this Ciudad Juarez cartel and Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Um, so, you know, one of these like anti, anti-guerrilla, anti-narco narcos that will, you know, actually get go to jail for about six years um, because it was pretty apparent that he had been for a long time collaborating and protecting the different narco-trafficking organizations, right? So that's the military. Then you have like the, the, the secret police that gets formed in Mexico, the DFS in 1947, with the help of the FBI. Um, the DFS becomes like this political police that the Mexican president can use to tamp down on political dissent. They're the ones, you know, spying, surveillance. By the 60s and 70s, they're also torturing, disappearing. And with that level of impunity and power, they also get into the drug game by the 70s and 80s. Um, you have the federal judicial police. They're the ones who control for this during this 50s, 60s, and 70s, really. They're the ones who are controlling um, the kickbacks that they're receiving from narco traffickers until the military moves in in the 70s and takes over for them, right? So the, the repressive apparatuses within the Mexican state of the 20th century play a really key role, if not the role, in helping foster create this, this political economy of narcotics. Now, how do, how do we view that in relation to the PRI, right? The, the, the party that emerges from the Mexican Revolution, the party that will rule Mexico, generally we'll say from the late 20s up until the year 2000. Well, you have pretty important you know, political officials within the party throughout the 20th century that are directly linked to narco traffickers and directly linked to military officials who are obviously involved in the game as well. But at no level can we say it's a narco state because the narcos haven't captured the state. It's actually the other way around. It's the Mexican post-revolutionary state that's trying to get its hands around this thing that's growing within its own confines 
and 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 by and they lose control of it. Like by the late '80s and, and '90s, they've effectively lost control of this thing, and that's when you see the rise of of these um, highly centralized drug trafficking organizations like the Ciudad Juarez cartel that's making a ton of money off of cocaine. So I, I guess it seems like it's, it's almost like you're dealing with uh, from 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 the the very very local level where you have these sort of landed elites and their gunslingers. It's like it, it's this almost sort of like like miniaturized fractal version of the state where it's like you're, you're getting these like in, in, very very small sort of like uh you know like almost like feudal domains and that they sort of expand upwards and send upwards but yeah and I, I guess the interesting part to me is is how like the paramilitary dynamics of that and how how the power of these sort of land at least and the power of the like how how it's like like the 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 power like the the use of power from the top seems to strengthen them where yeah. you know if if you're looking at this from like like how how this is supposed to work in theory if you're someone who actually is like trying to eliminate the drug trade you'd think it'd be the other way around that like the application of power would shatter but it, it sort of doesn't it, it it causes these like these these buildups of these apparatuses and then they fragment and they rebuild again but it's you're not ever actually dealing with these sort of like micro state like yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And if anything, the paramilitarization is also like a like a long, it's a process, right? Mm -hmm. So like the first, if we can use this term, the first paramilitaries were were used to wipe out agrarian reform-minded campesinos in the 30s and 40s. Um, but you don't really have like a paramilitarization of 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 the drug trade in Mexico. To a certain extent, because you have the military and the police to do your dirty yeah. work, right? If you're a nautical, um, you, that's a more recent phenomenon that you start to see in the 90s and especially in the 2000s. So, right, the, the case that everyone points to are these um, the elite of the elite in the Mexican military, the the Gafis. These guys are like the the, the Navy SEALs or the Special Force, you know, uh, the Army Rangers, the Mexican military. Uh, a bunch of these guys in the mid to late 90s decide, you know what, we don't want to work for the Mexican military. We're just gonna uh, we're going to desert and we're going to go hire ourselves out to the Gulf cartel. And, and they become really the first like paramilitary wing of a major drug trafficking organization. And these are guys, some of which probably most likely were trained at school, of the Americas or received American specialized training yep. now switching sides and, and, and protecting a, a pretty powerful drug trafficking organization. Like at the time in the nineties, that was the Gulf cartel. And these are the infamous setas, right? These are the Z's. Um, they're called the setas because that was like their military code. There was always a Z in front of a number. Um, so Z1 was kind of like the leader, the first guy who took 12 or 13 guys with him to desert. And they hired themselves out to this drug trafficking organization. And they become like the paramilitary unit. The rest of the group see that and they're like, oh, shit, like we got to catch up. <laughs> right. Because these like yeah. and these guys, the Gafis, you know, they have ex counterinsurgency experience. You know, they were the ones who were fighting against the Zapatistas in Chiapas in the early 90s, right? They were the ones that they were oh, sending to. Oh, yeah. They were the ones who were fighting against the new cycle of guerrillas that emerged in Guerrero in the mid 90s, the EPR. And then when they're used for counter narcotics operations, they look at the situation. They say, you know what? We're not going to fight on the side of the military. We're going to hire ourselves out to these, this Gulf cartel. Where we're going to make a ton of money. Um, but they have a lot of skills, right? So the rest of the so the rest of the drug trafficking organizations see that and they're like we got to play catch up, and 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 you see the paramilitarization of this conflict and and in certain parts that's what's driving 
um, I think has has played a really big role in driving some of the, the bloodshed and violence that we've seen in Mexico, particularly since 2006, right? Where we can speak of probably 400,000 homicides since 2006, at least 100,000 disappearances. Um, a lot of that has to do with, you know, the people who are fighting are, are paramilitaries, right? They're receiving training from Colombian military advisors. They're receiving training from Israeli uh, military officials. They're receiving training from um, uh, Guatemalan special forces. These guys called the Caiviles who committed some of the worst atrocities during the Guatemalan conflict of the, of the, of the 70s and 80s. Um, my family's from Michoacan, which is a state north of Guerrero. And I remember when in probably 2005, six or seven, I was down there doing research and visiting family. And they reported on the arrest of two Guatemalans and two Colombians in this random uh, far off part of Michoacan. You're like, what were these two Colombians and two Guatemalans doing there? Well, they were most likely like special ex-special forces in those countries' militaries who had been hired by local tr uh, organizations to train their, their, their soldiers, to train their, their paramilitaries. Um, so that, that's, I think, uh, that has driven a lot of the violence, right? And you see it it's in terms of the techniques they use, the weapons, the armament, the, the logics of, of how to take down their enemies. Yeah, I remember I read an article like, okay, I've literally lost all sense of time. I, I think it was like mid last year about a cartel just basically running a military operation, just shutting, like just shutting down a city. Um, I'm, I'm, God, I really wish. I Yeah, that was pre pandemic. That was yeah, when, that was um, pre pandemic. Oh my God. Yeah, I remember because I was on the, the day and the day after it happened. I, I think I spent way too much time on Twitter talking shit to people. Um, that was when I think you're referring to when the uh, uh, detachment from the Mexican military um, in the city of Culiacán, which is the capital of Sinaloa. Culiacán is seen as like if Sinaloa is the cradle of the Mexican drug trade, then like Culiacán is the capital of it. Right. Um, I think. I think you're referring to when a, a Mexican military detachment tried to arrest one of the yeah, sons of his chapel, yeah. right? And they actually found him. They localized him. They located him and they tried to arrest him. And like the hills just came down on the city of Culiacan. And you had hundreds of, of narcos or, or paramilitaries who came down and essentially forced, um, forced the military and the state to hand over El Chapo's son to them. And, and, for, and the reason why I was like... Uh, you know, spent way too much time on social media going after people is because people said, oh, this is an example of a failed state. Oh, look at the new president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He's lost control of the, uh, of the state. Like he's kowtowing to narcos. And it was much more complicated than that. And something similar had already happened um, in the previous administration where these different, like particularly in the city of, of Guadalajara, where they even shot down a military helicopter, a police helicopter. And they, and they essentially... Um, shut down the entire city because one of their leaders had been captured. Okay, so one of one of, one of the things you the, one of the things you talk about at the end of the article was about these this environmentalist group that gets like they 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 all get arrested while like their their lawyer gets killed after he starts talking about like connections between business owners and the party and the narco trade. So I guess like what what do you how do you sort of like like how how do you leftist movements sort of navigate this space because you have it seems like you have on the one hand you know you, you, you have all these paramilitaries and then you also have a state that is like incredibly violently hostile to you and i guess i don't know like i i, I, I guess you sort of have 
the Zapatista model of this combination of sort of like armed struggle and social pressure. But I guess like how 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 do people navigate this sort of like it seems like a, like a really yeah. disastrous like yeah. place to be trying to do leftist politics in. Yeah, it's it's really difficult, right? And I think that's again going back to the the, the thesis that the war on drugs is actually a war on poor people. It's um, you know, leftist movements, dissident movements in Mexico have to, well, for one, I'll say this, in a place like Guerrero, it's these movements that have provided, I think, the the most accurate, like, x-ray analysis of what the state is at the local level, right? So um, this this guerrilla leader that I talk about in the article, Comandante Ramiro, who, who was around in the late, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, like, based on his travels in the mountains of Guerrero and kind of like the, the actions that he was engaged in, for him, it was very clear that the military was collaborating with all narco-trafficking organizations, not just the one, not just like the most powerful one, right? So at the national level, there was a lot of discourse of, well, this dark drug trafficking organization is going at it with this one. In a place like Guerrero, this guerrilla leader looks at the situation. He's like, actually, they're all working together. And not only that, but they have the police and the military. And what are they doing? They are... Um, going after poor communities up in the mountains who don't want to grow opium poppies or who want to organize uh, a different way, an alternative model of, of, of living, of social reproduction. Um, what they'll say is, you know, uh, uh, the, what the military is doing in terms of drug interdiction is they'll only go and, and, and burn some opium poppy fields and not others. And that's because the owner of that opium poppy field that they burned didn't pay up. Um, so, you know, now current movements in Guerrero, particularly indigenous movements in Guerrero, there's a recent report that, a, that a, an indigenous group just put out and they're linked to the Congreso, Congreso Nacional Indigen, the CNI, I can't remember uh, the, the acronym, um, where they talk about uh, a criminal state existing in, in, the, in the part of Guerrero that is known as La Montaña, which is a heavily indigenous area on the border, on the Eastern part of the state. And what they say is what we see here is a, a, an alliance between narcos, um, political parties, uh, military detachments, and transnational corporations. Um, and so, and, and in Guerrero, those transnational corporations are usually have something to do with mining, and they're usually Canadian. Um, so, how do you navigate that? Like that is like like the the correlation of forces, if we want to use that kind of terminology, like from a perspective of a of a group that that wants to resist this. It's, it's, it's damn near impossible, right? Like you have everything going against you. And yet in Guerrero, people are still resisting, right? You have the students of Ayotzinapa that are still protesting. They're still organizing even after the disappearance of their 43 comrades back in September of 2014. And we still don't have a clear answer as to what happened. Um, you still have, you know, you have the model of, of autonomy that like that, that certain indigenous communities like the community in Cheran and Michoacan have, have practiced, which is, Essentially, they kick out all political parties, they kick out all police officers, and they self-organize at the communal level, uh, almost like a community police force. And you see that in Guerrero as well. There's, all, you know, there's, there's challenges with that. There's a, yeah. That usually brings on a lot of violence. And, and the people of Chiran have really suffered for, for trying to go this, for trying to protect themselves, right? They've, they've suffered a lot of casualties. Um, and there you have a, a, uh, this combination of like narcos and illegal uh, logging. Right. And, and so the community there on the one hand is trying to protect their ecology, but they're also trying to defend themselves from narcos who have taken over local political parties and they don't want them in their in their town. In Guerrero, you have community police forces and you've had them since the 1980s and 1990s. Um, 
but that's raised a, a, a lot of issues in terms of you know what happens when one community police force gets co-opted or, or co-opted or corrupted by a political party or by even a narco, and then that that group is used to hit against other community groups who are, who are still trying to organize for 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 a radical alternative. So it's 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 on one level it's really depressing, right? Because everything is stacked against groups and communities and organizations in a place like Guerrero who want a better world, who want to create a better world. But in the longer scope of Guerrero's history, they still resist. They still resist. And, and to me, that's one of the things that fascinates me about this place and about its people, about its communities, that the odds have always been stacked against them. And nonetheless, they still resist. They still try to, um, uh, against overwhelming odds, they still try to carve out a better uh, more just, more dignified existence for them and for their communities, even at great risk, you know, uh, uh, for their well-being. And they're willing to risk everything. So they're still there. They're still there, even though the the forces that they're facing are, are extremely powerful. Yeah, I think that's a surprisingly hopeful note to end on, which is that, yeah, it's even in like, you know, <laughs> places with just incredible concentrations of violence and different kinds of sort of power against you that people people well, people continue to fight yeah yeah i think that's i think that's one of the lessons that we definitely get from a place like guerrero um or a place like chiapas right with the with the zapatistas yeah. who are still there who have still managed to re i mean they've managed to reproduce themselves generationally which is really difficult for an armed um uh uh, insurrectionary group, right? Like they've managed to do that and, 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 and to carve out at great cost as well, right? They're currently yeah. right now suffering. They've been suffering for, for more than a decade, a low intensity warfare that's been waged by the military and their paramilitaries. Yeah. Uh, but they're still there with their example. Right. And, and I think part of the power of them and the people in Guerrero is, is their example alone is threatening to power to the powers that be. And, and that's why that there's always an effort to exterminate them. So just by virtue of surviving and, and, and defending themselves, um, that's like a small, it seems like a small thing, but, but they're providing an alternative. And I think yeah. that's where their, their example is really important. And, and I, I, th I think, I think there is, I think there's a real argument that the whole sort of, the, the whole sort of anti-globalization, like that wave of struggle, like is something that was kicked off by the Zapatistas and not, like, and not just on the sort of like, they were the first people to go into revolt, but it's like, I mean, explicitly like the, the, the way they brought you know, I mean, like social movements from across the world together and the way they, you know, the way that they like had, they got the way they got people talking, the way they had people training each other, the techniques and the sort of ideas that they were exchanging that they like, like they, they, they set off like a wave of, of revolt that lasted for like, I don't know, if you started in like 1999, it, like the end of it's like 2006. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was incredible. Yeah. yeah no, they, I think they, they're, and even if you want to go, this might take us off topic a little bit, right? But like scholars who focus on like Venezuela would say, actually, the first one was the Caracaso, right? In, in the late 80s, when you have a popular rebellion in Caracas, Venezuela, against neoliberalism, against yeah. neoliberal austerity measures, right? And then, so I've had that, I've had a, a yeah. you know, talks with friends, I'll be like, yeah, the Zapatistas were the first ones. They're like, no, 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 no. It started in Caracas in 1989, I think it was a Caracaso. But yeah, no, I think their, their global example continues to be a, a really powerful one. For me personally, it's like, I still remember my parents had, my parents are, are migrants from Mexico. They had this, this big satellite dish in our backyard so we can beam in 
uh, you know, TV stations from Mexico. And I remember January 1st, 1994, we woke up, right, groggily uh, <laughs> celebrate New Year's. And my parents turned on the TV to see Mexico City News. And there was Marcos, right? And there were the Zapatistas. Um, and there were then the Mexican politicians saying, no, don't believe what, don't believe your eyes. This isn't, you had a guy, I remember you had a guy go on TV, I think, saying something like, this is not an indigenous movement because if it was an indigenous movement, they would be using machetes, not rifles. Like something really <laughs> condescending, like Jesus. the level of racist condescension yeah. that came out of Mexican politicians in, 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 in response to this movement. Yeah. Um, was was super high right but I, I remember i was in junior high and i remember seeing it and i'm just like there has to be something wrong for these people to do this right and that yeah. just led me to want to do more research and to do more reading and and that i think is really powerful and i think it, I, I still think it's really powerful so the more we can get the word out about these movements in, in guerrero and chiapas and in other parts of latin america i think i think it's still really important and i think especially today we really we do need a bit more hope in these yeah. dark pandemic times yeah I was trying to figure out a, a speaking of hope segue, and I couldn't. I couldn't quite get it. But uh, uh, do, do you do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, um, well, thank you so much for for having me on. This was this yeah. was a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on oh God, like you can find me on Twitter. I think the pandemic, my Twitter consumption has really gone up. It's been <laughs> awful, but you can find me at, at Alexander underscore Avina. Yeah. Um, Something I want to plug. No, I think if if you go on my Twitter page, you'll see you, you'll be able to get the link to the to the article that we've been talking today um, about about the drug from dirty war to drug war in, in Guerrero. Um, I recently published a book review of of this really fascinating book on the the connection between the Israeli arms industry and like Cold War Latin America. So you can find that on my page. Uh, but yeah, it's I don't really have anything else to plug. <laughs> Whenever well, I finish this damn book on dirty wars and drug wars, uh, have me back on and I'll yeah, have something tangible to, to plug. But right now it's just short little articles. Well, thank thank you again for coming on the show. Um, yeah, this this is this has been Naked Happen here. You can find us in the usual places if you want to venture on social media for some reason. Please don't. It's it's a bad place. <laughs> but yeah, thank you and goodbye everyone. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Happy Pride. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. 
I'm here to tell you about Lambda Legal. For more than 50 years, Lambda Legal has been in court protecting the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people and everyone living with HIV. And the good news is you can help. Support Lambda Legal's work by donating this Pride Month. Throughout June, all donations up to $100,000 will be matched. To donate, go to lambdalegal.org. That's L-A-M-B-D-A legal.org. Help Lambda Legal remain unstoppable. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. NFLShop.com is your one-stop shop for officially licensed NFL gear to rep your favorite team. Check out the latest arrivals of jerseys, t-shirts, and much more. You'll find everything you need for a winning season with the best selection of NFL gear you'll find anywhere. Assemble your fan uniform for cheering on your team everywhere from the stadium to your couch. Shop an unbeatable selection of gear to showcase your team pride and style. To shop now, go to NFLShop.com.